Screenless. The TV drama is imagined. The work and the guests are real. Making a soundtrack. Hello and welcome to the Making a Soundtrack podcast. Opening scene and action. I'm Gareth Davis. And I'm Dan Watts. So, Dan, how are you doing? How's your week been? Uh, good, good, thank you. Yep, uh, busy, as per usual. Lots and lots of um, stuff going on, but uh, but all good. How about you? Yeah, similar, similar. Lots of podcast editing. I'm listening back a lot, actually, and I think it will help inform our next steps. So this morning, actually, I listened back to all the episodes that we've done already, and there are little nuggets of wisdom in there, things that we've said that I might have forgotten and things that our guests have said, which I think I've since thought, ah, yeah, of course, yeah. I should probably do the same. It's one of those things, that, I mean, you know, does anyone really like the sound of their own voice? I'm sure there are some narcissists yeah. out there that really yeah. do like the sound of their own voice. I don't. So, uh, you know, once it's done, it's kind of done. <laughs> well, it was part looking for information. It's also part production for me so listening back and thinking are the mixes okay how does it sound what can i do better that kind of thing i've also uh, a little while ago i went to an airfield down south and uh recorded a boeing stearman biplane engine it was just there right in front of me and so i put the microphone down surreptitiously and and started recording and at that moment, the engine started and it just sat there for about 10 minutes. I just could not believe my luck. So I've captured all this, uh, Amazing. this plane engine. So I've thrown that in the shared folder for us to use for whatever. Ooh. Should we have a little listen? How can we sneak that in? Yeah, let's have a listen. Sounds awesome. I'm sure it'll probably end up as a drone <laughs> or some kind of atmosphere. I don't know how you could do something with the because the st- the startup of the engine is just awesome. It really is. Or I'm going to say that word again. Awesome. There's a point at the end as well where it starts to taxi, so it, it'll kind of drift off into the distance, which is equally as awesome. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Anyway, on this episode, we have scriptwriter for TV and film Andrea Gibb. She's coming up in a little bit, who delivers what can only be described as a masterclass in navigating the world of TV production. I couldn't believe my ears when you were talking to yeah. her. She had lots of good advice and was very open, wasn't she? Yeah, very open about the whole thing. Said that all of all of the information that she was giving was freely available yeah. already. Um, but it's there's something. But yeah, we were we were both sat there. And I both said, you know, are you <laughs> yeah. taking notes? <laughs> I know we're recording it, but at the same time, are you taking notes? Because it was just fascinating. And although she said very clearly that the advice that she was giving is freely available in books, there's something about someone with that level of experience giving that advice or repeating that advice that's wholly more believable for me. Well, shall we catch up with what we're doing with our music in Cue the Music? Let's do it. Cue the music. Cue the music. So, we have been collecting sounds. We have been collecting sounds. I started looking at some appliances. So, if we go into drones to begin with, uh, we've set up a folder there, haven't we? We have, yeah. Um, So, this is on our Google Drive that we've both got access to. Yes, indeed. So, we're looking at the same thing, despite being 100 miles apart. So, I played around with some natural sounds um, of a local lock that we have here at Shepparton. So it was the lock water filling the lock. So I made that into a drone, stretched out the sound, and also of a fan oven. So let's have a listen to those.
Okay, what do we think of those then? Uh, I I really like both of them. Um, I think the 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 lock water's just fascinating. You can tell it's water, but at the same time, I try to include a little bit of the dry signal. Most of it is wet signal, so that means the effect rather than the 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 raw signal that I recorded. Is that an immediate put in the use folder for the lock water? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I can see us using that. Okay. So, Dan, what have you been messing around with? Well, I decided I, too, was thinking, oh, well, I'll, I'll just grab a field recorder and go out and record whatever I can find, wherever, and was a bit pushed for time, so instead went round the house recording things, uh, all sorts of stuff. We've got a ship's clock on the wall in the kitchen, <laughs> so I recorded a bit of that although I don't think we used any of that in the end. Um, there was some hum from one of the fridges we've got, a microwave that I recorded. I just put microwave. it on for, th- for 30 seconds and recorded it with beeps and everything. And bizarrely, because well, my house is a bit weird anyway, but it's an ex-care home, so it's got a lift in it. So <laughs> I went in the lift and just recorded myself going down from the top floor to the ground floor and uh, made a loop out of that. That's amazing. You've got a lift in your house. Yes, there's a lift and two stairs, two sets of stairs. It's a ridiculous situation and there's a, there is a reason behind it, but uh, we, won't, <laughs> we won't go into that now. I imagine that the microwave might be a very good fit for a drone. Yes, well, I, I instantly found that if you time-stretched it so it was really long, mm. it, it, there was all sorts of interesting textures in it. And whilst it was recording, I found a couple of sweet spots by moving the microphones backwards and forwards. And it's it's almost a little bit like the lightsaber sound from Star Ooh. Wars, you know, that kind of thing. But it's uh, it's nowhere near as cool as that. It's, um, it's kind of a lame lightsaber sound. Shall we have a little listen to yeah, it? Yeah, let's have a listen to that. Great. To me, that's an immediate use as well. Put it in the use folder. Great. And these drones, we can do different things with them, can't we? We could either make a contact instrument, which uh, contact being the sampler uh, that we could both use, which means that we can uh, alter the tone of it. Yep. And then maybe build on on that, you know, use it as the kind of foundation of kind of an atmosphere uh, or an ambience. I, th- I think it's, especially if it's taken from a real world thing, it gives it a, another quality, something that's not yeah. 100% synthetic, even though you've obviously put it inside a computer and messed about with it. It gives things a place. And yes. It gives it, gives it a, um, it gives it a feel mm. and uh, instantly, instantly feels real rather mm. than synthesized. Not that there's anything wrong with synthesizers. Anyone <laughs> who knows me knows I absolutely adore synthesizers, but I think in this context, yeah. having that, um, having that real world um, kind of vibe is what's going to work for us. Yes, yes. This is what we're going for, really, isn't it? There is a place for sample libraries and things, but we're really trying to make this sound as unique as possible. So you recorded lots of different things in your house. I did. Including your lift. And can we listen to your lift? Yeah, that's. Uh, I've got a little loop. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've not really done anything with it apart from boosted the signal. Um, there's a little bit of EQ um, and just boosted the signal, really. Uh, it's it's just it's just the runners. So it's, yeah. it's obviously there's big wheels to guide the thing down, and it's, I think it's just those, but there's, there seem to be a natural rhythm to it. Absolutely, and if you record something that's quite short and, and do that on a cycle, then it's going to create that kind of an unnatural but very accurate rhythm, depending on what your BPM is in your session. I think I worked it out as 110.5 BPM. That's very precise and very helpful. Very helpful. You also did a very low piano hit. I did. Now, the piano I have is not in the studio. It's in a separate room um, and I do record it. and I have to take stuff down there to record it. But I just thought if I did the highest notes and the lowest notes, it would be interesting to see what we could get out of it. And I actually managed to do just by rolling off a lot of the top end and putting a bit of reverb on it. Um, I managed to turn it into a a kind of hit. So let's just listen to that. 
The other thing I did with the exact same note was I auto-tuned it. I knew it was going to be slightly out of tune, so I thought by sticking it in something to actually put it up to concert pitch would be uh, would be interesting. And it just I've just called it wonky piano, um, which I might turn into a uh, contact instrument. So it would be like mm. an actual piano, but um, this wonky, wonky note. So that sounds a bit like this. That's fantastic. Okay, so there's a fair bit to work from there. Now, you also recorded lots of rhythmic things in your house. Yeah. And I've had a little go, since you've uploaded those, I've had a little go at recording a rhythm. So gathering those all together. Um, And I'm not saying that this has to be used. Uh, I'm just, I've just been experimenting. I think it highlights a way that we could use things in different formats and different tempos in different um, combinations. So uh, let's have a little listen to that. Yeah, love that. Great. It's a good example. Uh, I, I wanted to include the... I think you did a squeaky door or something. With it being an ex-care home, there were lots of door closers and all this kind of stuff that they Mm. had to have on these things so that all the doors shut themselves. And a lot of them we've taken off now, but there's, there's a few still there. And the really squeaky one is actually in the bit next to the studio, which I've got at the top of the house. And um, it's just a store cupboard. So it's, it's where my sort of mics and bits and bobs that I don't use is, but it's got a really great squeaky noise. So quite a lot of that is actually that door because it's oh, a great. heavy okay. fire door shutting and then the the squeak from the uh, the thing. I included that in the rhythm just to give it a kind of a breathing quality. Everything else is fairly on the beat and everything, but that kind of just comes in and creaks every so often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it sounds great. Excellent. So let's move on to textures. Um, I think we've both we've both done a couple of things here. Yes, you did something interesting with sticks. Yes, I went to a place called Horsell Common, which uh, listeners might know as the landing place for the aliens in War of the Worlds. Did you take your theremin? I did not, although... Uh, oh, shame. I mean, I looked enough of a lunatic as it was, dragging branches around <laughs> and sticks and, and you know, stomping around in circles and things like that without a theremin as well. Uh, so I was picking up branches and dragging them around and recording those. I brought that back. I put it into uh, Space Designer in Logic and um, had a mess around with that. And this is what happened. Oh, it's eerie. It sets a scene, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. You know, along with the lock water, it's it's hard to tell if that's branches or water or, you know, that could be water against a boat. I, I don't know. Yeah, it does. But it, it's quite nice that it conjures the image without it being very obvious what it is. Yeah, it's, you know it's real. Mm. It's derived from something real, slightly unsettling. But yeah, it does have a, an almost, I don't know, it's because it's a reverb that's been used to manipulate it, but it does have a a sort of watery quality to it. Yeah. Okay. And you've been recording your kettle? Yes. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm basically fuelled by tea. (laughs) Uh, I am a proper northerner. (laughs) Everything can be sorted with a cup of tea. And uh, I thought I'll just record my kettle. All I did with it was I used a plugin that's, uh, again, it's uh, used for vocal treatments really more than anything else. And I used the auto-tune feature in that to lower it by one and two octaves. Great. Which made it uh, interesting, I thought. Great. Okay, let's have a quick listen to each of those. They sound very, very good. And again, like you said, you get the sense of something real 
but you're not quite sure what it is. Yeah. And I think that's really exactly what we're going for, isn't it? When you take something real worldy and do something different with it, it it's like, what is that? I mean, it's a great, it's a cool sound, but mm. you know, unless you happen to be um, the person who recorded it, you, you, you know, you couldn't tell that that was a kettle. Yeah. So what happens next? Do we think? Uh, I've already got a little bit of a idea for a melody just after listening to the lock. So I think maybe the next thing is for me just to have a play with that. Okay. And see what comes out of that. Great. Okay. Um, I might just go back through and I might just get drawn to something and have a further play i might come up with some more drones and more you know just add to the kind of toolkit uh so to speak and then maybe if you need me to play anything for your melody very happy yep. to do that or just cool. you know just let me know well i think that's it for this week so by the time we get to the next episode i think we should have some more well certainly some some sketches yeah Something to play, something to listen through, I think. Some ideas, I hope. And we can start building that jigsaw. Yeah. Andrea Gibb is a film and television writer. Her feature film, Dear Frankie, starring Emily Mortimer and Gerard Butler, won the Women in Film and Television Script Award in 2004. And since then, she's been BAFTA-nominated, worked on countless productions, including Nurse Pauline, Queen of Cooks, Call the Midwife, and the recent Festival Award-winning film adaptation of Swallows and Amazons. Her feature-length adaptation of Emma Healy's award-winning novel Elizabeth is Missing went into production for STV and BBC One in the summer of 2019. Andrea Gibb, welcome to the Making a Soundtrack podcast. Thank you very much. That was a lovely introduction. When did you first realise you wanted to be a writer and what continues to inspire you to write? I was an actor for a good 10, 12 years before I even considered becoming a writer. Um, in, In all honesty, it never occurred to me that I could even do it. I used to find I'd be given a script and that I was in and I used to think that writers were magicians. And in some ways, I still think that, um, except I, don't, I have a lot of self-doubts about my own work, but I always find the work of other writers astonishing. I can't quite ever believe how they do it. Um, so it was a kind of, for me, it, I, was getting, I was coming up, I was in my 30s and late 30s, and I was thinking, gosh, I need to think about something else, not just being an actor, because, you know, parts for women in their 40s they're few and far between really good roles and things like that and I was I was doing really I was doing well I was what we would call a jobbing actor I was on television I was doing theatre but you know there were periods of downtime of unemployment and I was thinking gosh I need to think about something else you know what else is there and I went up to Scotland I wasn't living I was living in London at the time to do a a show at a, a theatre called the Tron, Tron Theatre in Glasgow, which is a fantastic theatre. Um, and it, it does a lot of really amazing work. And I was really, really proud to be there working there. And I was working with an actor called Peter Mullen, who I think most of you will know who he is. Yeah. And at yeah. that time in Scotland, what really struck me was that people were being, were being encouraged, artists, creative artists, were being encouraged to do more than just one thing. You, you didn't have to be in a box. You didn't just have to be an actor. You didn't just have to be a, a painter or, you know, oh, I was going to say a painter and a decorator, but you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> you, you could be more than one thing. You, you were sort of encouraged to expand your, what you felt was your creative horizon. And someone like Peter was quite an inspiration for that because he was, he, he was writing, he was directing, he was this amazing actor and I sort of thought, maybe that's something. Maybe I could do something else creatively. So I, I came, I went back to London and I thought, well, maybe I could write a short, a short film. You know, my naivety thinking that was so easy. Um, 
And the one thing I really, I did know about was I knew what script looked like because I'd been an actor for so long, but I didn't really have any real notion of how to structure or how to do a story arc or anything like that. What, what I had was a series of instinctive impulses and I knew, I knew what a bad line of dialogue was because I'd said quite a few in my <laughs> acting career. I understood subtext instinctively because of being an actor, because that's what you work from. That's what you hide when you're an actor, if you like. Um, and I also understood that conflict was the essence of drama. So those things were natural, instinctive things I understood. I had no clue about about how to do anything technically. Anyway, I come from a from a working class family from Greenock, West Coast of Scotland. And I my mother had seven sisters. My father was a Protestant, my mother was a Catholic. I have a foot in both camps. Um and I have a a million dysfunctional family stories, basically. Although I love the family so much. Um, and I know that writers were, to, one of the things you're told when you're an emerging writer, um, I always think of that as like coming out of an egg, but you know what I mean. Um, so my first attempt at writing was a short film, a, a story my mother had told me about her, seven, about her sisters and her auntie. So I wrote, I wrote it based on that, basically. I wrote, I, wrote a, I wrote a little short film called Lucky Bag. And I, I was lucky enough to know a producer who was prepared to read it. And she was incredibly encouraging and said, I think, you know, yeah, this is good. Write something else. So that was really the start of it. And I was living in my head and I loved that. And I could be all the parts. I wasn't just the social worker or the teacher or anything like that. I could be everything. And I'd say all the voices aloud. And I was, I really had a good time. And I think that was a bit of a revelation. Um, although it did take me a good many years before I would read a book on how to write because I was frightened that that instinctive thing would go if somebody taught me the rules. So I didn't do that for a while. Um, and also, I, I just sort of, I had, a, I had a kind of good time. And that was kind of, oh, you know, and, I, I, and weirdly enough, as an actor, I used to be quite sort of, oh, am I any good? I was tortured with self-doubt. But there was something liberating in this writing thing mainly because I think I was doing it for myself to begin with and, and anybody that was that was very kind enough to read it for me that, that I didn't feel those doubts. I sort of, I, it was a very strange thing and people who know me very well will say that to me now and say the difference between my confidence as an actor and my, and my lack of self-immolation, if you like, or doubt as a writer is quite striking and I have no idea why that is because that's not to say that all my writing is good or even passable it's just my attitude to it is different yeah so that's how you got started how about what continues to inspire you I think what it is is because uh, I, I, I'm not going to lie writing can be a slog it can be a real slog and sometimes you're just banging your head off a wall and you can't find it and quite often you've taken on jobs that really you shouldn't have taken on because it, it, you're not fight, your voice isn't suiting it, yeah. if you like, but you persevere. A lot of writing is about perseverance and being prepared to keep on rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. So there is a slog attached, and I'm not, I'm not one for saying that, you, that writing is a, is a spiritual pursuit because I don't believe that. It's, it is hard work, although you're not down a mine, I just have to say. <laughs> you know, it's not that, it's, but it is really 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 hard and you do have to kind of constantly be changing and being open to change and all of that thing but I think I think what keeps you going is your ability to to reach out to people if you're lucky enough to get things made or you know for that is to reach out to a to a lot of people and to have something to say you know because I feel that writing if you are taking on it's quite a responsibility, particularly if you adapt other people's books. You have an enormous responsibility to the source material. And I think you have an enormous responsibility to the ideas at the heart of that material. So I think I'm inspired by, by ideas that I feel have something to say about who we are as people, as humans, as a community, as a uh, you know, all of those things about the state of our community, our society. 
and about also our humanity. And so a lot of the things that I am inspired by is work like that. And I hope, I aspire to, I wish, I that's what I want to do is write work that has meaning. And I don't mean that in a really pompous way. I just mean has meaning. Because meaning, there is meaning in small details, in the smallest mm. aspects of human life. And those are the kind of things that inspire me. And that's why I keep on doing it. Plus, I get paid. <laughs> no, that's wonderful. Thank you. I find it fascinating because we've spoken to several other creatives that not necessarily musical. Um, Rob McCallum, who's a concept and storyboard artist, and he brought up a lot of the same themes that you have about not really knowing whether you're any good, all of the sort of self-doubt that you have around all these things and the slog and the process and how you have to just keep working and keep working. And there are so many parallels with uh, that and what we do, writing music. It's not that you can boil it down to uh, the same thing all the time. There are obviously differences between each discipline, but there's definitely some common ground on the whole thing about creating something out of nothing. I, I yeah. think that's true. I think there is this myth sometimes that, that is thrown up about creativity, that it is something that happens almost without you trying, that it's just in you and you just you just sit down at the computer and you just go, Oh, I'm 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 pouring my soul onto the onto the screen. And it's really not like that. I mean, in my Elizabeth is missing folder, I have a folder on my desktop. My desktop is a nightmare, but I, I can occasionally find a folder and it has, I think there must be, oh my goodness, 100, 120 different drafts. Wow. Not all will have been read. Not all will have been shown to anyone else. But I will certainly have created that amount of work in producing the script that was eventually shot. And, and that work started in 2014 and was finally shot in 2019. And that is par for the course for a yeah. for a scriptwriter in this country and i mean that's the average length of time it takes to get to get from the start to the finish and you know I'm, that means that no, i'm not saying that there is, that the projects don't happen faster than that but i think by and large when you embark on something to write something that you hope will get made because it doesn't always you are looking at committing a good four years of your life to that single idea to that single entity and so therefore you have to be absolutely sure that you are saying something you need you want to say within it otherwise what is the point the other thing that you raised earlier that i thought was interesting was about your voice not fitting maybe with some of the jobs that you took on and i think that's another thing when you are creating music for any kind of media is that you have to create something somebody else is the boss you're creative, so there's things that you want to say, there's things that you want to do, but somebody else is the boss and they can disagree with you and they can push you down another way because that's the way that they want it to be, not the way that you do. And I think a lot of a lot of this job is working out what other people want from you. Yeah, that's really, I think that's a really good point because one of the things we always feel, you know, you, I, I usually start off working with a producer who will have come to me and said, do you, this is something I'm, uh, we're looking at in our company or whatever. Are you interested in this book? Are you interested in, in this piece? Uh, is it something you would like to do? And what's your take on it? That's usually how my things start. And it's not only just the material that I think is important then, it's are you on the same page, which is exactly what you were saying. It is your vision. That word sounds so elevated and I don't, I, you know, it sounds a bit pompous sometimes, but are you both are you both wanting to make the same thing because if you're not you are going to run into so many difficulties further down the line because you're going to feel as a writer that you're you're being stamped on and the producer is going to feel that they they've taken on the wrong person for the job so quite a lot of that you know you've got to use your instincts when you when you first go into to meet someone who wants to work with you is this is this going to be a a, a productive creative partnership more more often than not it, it is i've been very lucky with the people that i've worked for but i think you, you you just have to be aware of that because otherwise you are going to have it is going to be so frustrating um, and yeah. that's not to say that things won't change midstream you know because when you bring a director on 
that's another voice in the mix. So you have to be sure that that one is also, and to use a musical analogy, is in tune. Because otherwise, you know, there's going to be so much discord. There you go. Yeah. I'm, I'm finding it now. <laughs> Where's my bingo card? <laughs> As you said, you're investing four or five years of your life on something to get it made and you need to be able to work with these people and when we are working because we're at the end of it so you've put in a very very long stretch and quite often we're hired at the end and we get months maybe just weeks to do our thing and it can mean very very long hours um 16 18 i think the most the most i did was 22 um, which, you know, just to hit deadlines, which is just crazy. But when you are doing that, it's very important that you are working with people that you get on with, that you trust, and that you're on the same page with. Otherwise, it just all falls apart very quickly. I think that's true. I, one of the things I met, I do quite a bit of mentoring, uh, you know, to, to not necessarily young writers, but to writers who are starting out. Because there's quite a lot of people find writing in their middle years mm. or later. And that's great. I mean, why not? You know, you're never, ever, ever too old to start or to begin or to do anything. Um, I say go for it. But I, I, that's one of the things I think I always stress is that if you find someone that you have simpatico with, you grab onto them and you, you, you know, you make that a creative, a, a creative partnership in the journey because that is going to stand you in great stead. And it's when you look at, you know, great filmmakers. Um, and this, this includes the composers they work with or the cinematographers they work with or whatever. You know, they they find their tribe in inverted yeah. yeah. And they hold on to their tribe because that is where the most productive, creative work will happen is with people that you just get. Um, and it's, I, it's not easy to find these people. I know that. You know, I'm not saying you just go out and you shop for them because obviously it's <laughs> not. And it can be. Um, you know, working with people that you don't have um, that common ground with is it, it can be that can be really, really hard, you know, and upsetting. But, you know, if you find them, cling on. Absolutely. So you've done both TV and film. Um, what, what I mean, are there differences or is it just the work? You know, is is it difference right, writing for the small screen versus the big screen or is it just the work is the work? I think it, there are definitely differences. When I first started writing, I was very lucky because I was Scottish. I could apply for all these film schemes that were run in Scotland by a, by a body then called Scottish Screen. They're different now. It's different now. And so I am basically, I came up through those schemes. Most of my short films were, were commissioned by the Scottish Screen and were made th with Scottish Screen and Scottish Broadcast money. And, and at that time, I would never have contemplated television, really. It was film that was the thing that was accessible to me as a person starting out. I'm not sure that's entirely the case anymore. I think people starting out now, finding schemes and things like that to help you get going in film slightly less available, although BFI do do short film schemes to help people. But it is a, that's, a, that's a way into the film industry. For me, the path in originally, initially, was through film. So that's what I started writing. The short films and my two feature films got made quite quickly. So I felt, my, I felt myself to be a film writer. But film, it, it, particularly in Scotland, the industry, it, it didn't really managed to sustain itself it's very difficult to get films financed you know the the slot it's a slog i i think and that i think is why you find more even high profile directors are now moving to television because yeah. things like netflix and all those other platforms have come along and have revolutionized television in a way so there's more opportunities for for people to to get their work seen now whether that it's easier to break in I don't know, but it's certainly there is more opportunity opening places in television. That's not to say that it's still easy to get any TV made, um, because it certainly isn't. And you can go into be commissioned to write a TV script and spend two, three, four years of your life on it and it not to get made. And that's very, very, very common. I've got yeah. quite a few of those projects that 
I've worked on and put heart and soul into, but they, for some reason, by the time they're ready, there's no slots or the broadcasters have changed their minds or it, they're no longer fashionable or they're not very good or whatever, whatever the reasons are, they don't get made. Mm. So, but there is a, there's a, I think there is also a difference in film. The writer is considered, I, I don't really quite know how to describe this, but it's considered to be a director's medium because yeah. the, somebody once wrote an article in a French film journal and created this notion of the auteur theory. Now, I'm going to put my cards on the table. I don't hold with that. I don't hold with the, a film by title because I happen to believe that film is collaboration. Uh, I think I think that directors and writers and cinematographers and editors who also are the third person to make up the story, by the way, composers, makeup artists, every single member of the crew has a hand in creating that film. And that's not to say that the director isn't, isn't the conductor, if you want to say, yeah. uh, you know, the orchestra, <clears throat> but it's certainly the he, and you see there, there you go, I said he, because most of, most film directors, shockingly, are men. Um, they are not the creators of the film, if you like, because that is something that happens in the process of the collaboration. Cards on the table, I do not hold with the, a film by. In television, it's slightly different in the sense that the writer, the director is usually brought on later in the process. So the writer will have worked with the with the producer and the development executives and the commissioners to get a script to the point where it is ready to be seen by a director and they will then bring a director on to direct it. Now, I think that is shifting and changing too, but certainly that is my experience at the moment. So in terms of authorship, creative authorship, if you like, the tone and the vision for that TV idea has kind of been set so what you're looking for is a director who's going to come along and carry that through, as opposed to a director who's going to come along and throw all letters up in the air and rearrange them when they fall down on the table. And obviously with TV, you're, you're on a small screen. With film, you're on a big screen. So in terms of your epic choices or your landscape, that's different too. You, you, you know, which is why I think a lot of television is more domestic and is more is smaller in focus, but not necessarily in universal theme. I don't know if that help if that's helpful, but that that's kind of how I distinguish it. Yeah, that, I mean that makes perfect sense to me. Having done both, working on a, a, a children's thing that was I don't want to use the term sausage factory because it it wasn't like that, but they had uh, they had a way of doing it, and it was done really quickly, and More everyone formulaic. was it was it was formulaic to a degree, uh, but it was done in a uh, they had the team. It was very clever. They had the team. So you had post-production, uh, sorry, pre-production, then production, then post-production. And you had the same teams on each and they'd do like 10 episodes. So they'd split it into two and have the first two go through. And then when the first two had gone through pre-production into production, episode three and four would come in behind and they would slot in and just work their way through. That meant that the, the the whole team was being used and utilized constantly, whereas the directors then were brought in and they were they literally had two weeks, two weeks they'd do their thing, and if they were only doing the two episodes, that was it they'd be gone, and then another director would come in and they'd do that, and then they'd go. Uh, but with film, obviously the director, as you say, is there from the start, and um, to a degree they take it on as their baby, whether they've written it or not. Sometimes. Um, the ones that I, the ones that I've worked with, have all been writer directors. So that I mean, that's a different thing in it, in and on itself. Yeah, completely different. Mm. Yeah. I, I I think that whole notion of the factory television, if you like, is interesting. Yeah. Um, because I I work on um called the midwife, and I am struck by how amazingly clever that team on Call the Midwife know their show inside mm. out. They, so I wouldn't remotely describe it as a factory because what it is, is they understand their audience, they understand their demographic, they understand what their show is and what it is for and who it is for. 
And that is why they make such a successful job of it, because they've come along, they've understood their parameters, they know exactly what it is they, are, what they want to say and to whom they want to say it to. And it, and it is just incredibly successful for that reason. They never, ever, ever lose sight of their audience. With film sometimes, you need to know who your audience is, whatever you're writing, because other, otherwise, what is the point of writing it if you don't know who you're writing it for? Yeah. So you're not writing it for yourself in some self-indulgent exercise. Um, even though it's enjoyable, um, you know, as I've already said, I love doing that. But the point is, if I don't know who, this, who my story is for, what is the point of me of me writing? I don't, then I wouldn't know how to shape it. I wouldn't know how to how to what the tone should be or anything like that. So that, that's a key for me in, in writing anything, film or television. And I think in the in the really successful TV um, like Succession or uh, which I am absolutely hooked on at the moment, that knows exactly what it is. It, it knows its tone perfectly. It 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 is genius writing. Uh, the thick of it, you know, you uh, there are flea bag. There are numerous, numerous examples of what you might deem factory, the Killing Eve, in the sense that they're rolling on a program. They've got one going, they've got one in, they've got two mm. in, two in prep, and two being written. That you know, so they're mm. they've got a process. But in terms of of why, what they what they're doing it for, and who they're doing it for, they are spot on. They know exactly. I think with film. Even though you think you know who your audience is, or you hope you know what it's for, sometimes they don't come. No matter what Kevin says in Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. Sometimes <laughs> they absolutely don't come. Not through any fault of the film necessarily, but but just because people don't the, the effort of getting to the cinema or you know whatever uh, publicity, the distribution chain, all of those things suddenly come into factor. You know, and also, I guess also with the thing is with television and the difference in film and TV is that with film, you're sort of stuck in a darkened room for 90 minutes. You've made the, if you've made the, what's the word, the contract with the filmmakers to go and sit and watch their film, it's more difficult to get out because mm. you're kind of there. Whereas with TV, you've got to know your audience in that first 15 minutes. So bringing it back to what Dan and I are doing, we're really creating a, a, a TV drama soundtrack without any context of a TV drama, which sounds a little bit bonkers, really. But So we, we've kind of tried to imagine how uh, a track listing for an album would go, having listened to soundtrack albums. And I was wondering if we could share with you what we've decided. Maybe you could tell us if we are way off the mark or uh, we're on the right track. So um, we've got Scribble here, which we're, we went through, but it's going to be up on our social media as well for people yeah. to have a little look at. We started with uh, an intro. So obviously these titles aren't final. <laughs> um, so an introduction. So that bit before the opening titles where it really sets up the scene. Sets a scene. Yeah. And then moving from that into the theme tune, which we're not even going to approach until nearer the end when we will have a much better idea of what we're dealing with. Then for track three, we've moved on to location. So we've gone through the introduction theme tune and then we are writing about a location. Where is this thing set? And then moving into a couple of character themes. So character one, character two. Uh, again, we haven't drilled down any details about who these characters might be or their natures or anything like that. And then we come to an event. So something happens. So I suppose we're getting into the second act, what you might call that. After the first oh. act, turning point. Turning point. Oh, right. Yeah, that's a, where's my pen? <laughs> it's got a lot of people who write, who tell you how to structure screenplays, give it loads of different um, names, but it's basically the same thing. You know what? Yeah. In terms of story structure, sorry to interrupt, but just to, to, right. to, to give you story structure to where you are now. A story is interesting because if it's a single protagonist story, the setup, if you like, the introduction, that first act, would be mm -hmm. about setting up the character where they are now, in where they are, in terms of who they are now, how they behave, what their, if you like, what their problem is. So you tell the audience, this character has these problems is in this difficulty. These, this character is 
stuck in a stasis. This character is this character is in trouble because or whatever. Mm. This character thinks everything is all right. This character is in for a shock. Set the character in the in the place, which is what you, is your location thing. So we know where the character exists in terms of its physical, the character's physical space. Um, and we also know where the character exists in terms of the mental space. So the, the physical place and the mental, mental place, if you like, can either be in opposition or can be complementary. So that's the kind of thing that you're dealing with in a setup. Okay, that's interesting. And then you get to what they would call, what Robert McKeon's story would call the inciting incident, which is... Hang on, I need to get a, I need to get a pen. This is... I am writing this down. This is like a masterclass. <laughs> and that inciting incident, if you think about Wizard of Oz, yep. that inciting incident yep. is the tornado when she is cast off into, you know, away from Kansas. Because Dorothy at the beginning of Wizard of Oz is just saying constantly, um, is you, Kansas is presented as somewhere Dorothy wants to get away from mm. at the beginning of the story. She, the tornado happens and she's granted her wish, basically. She is catapulted out of uh, out of Kansas to towards Oz. So that is kind of one way of looking at a story because then your protagonist is thrust into this new situation, this new place, this new location where anything can happen. The writer can decide what obstacles, what you know, what what are they, what yeah. is that, what is that character going to have to overcome in order to come home from the tornado. I once went on a course after I felt confident enough to do some work on story structure because um, structure is my least good aspect, if you like. I'm, I'm not great at it. And this guy just did it very simply. And he just said, character one, who is your, your main protagonist, starts at point A. Something happens, the inciting incident, the tornado, whatever you want to call it. And they get catapulted into this place, which is called the liminal zone. And in the liminal zone, which is basically act two, anything can happen to this character. Anything. So in terms of your soundscape, you could go anywhere with in act two. As yeah. long as you keep the main themes going, because you will have introduced the main theme. Yeah. It, like a concerto, I suppose, or a symphony. That, that you know, you bring in the main themes and then you disrupt them. But you then come out of the liminal zone at point at after your character has gone through a series of transformations or changes or whatever, although in real life we know people don't really change, but this is story, this is reality. This is not reality, this is story, and people want to be, inverted commas, transported. They come out at the end of the liminal zone, having gone through all this, all this transformation, allegedly changed to point B, which is their resolution, which is where they are now in a... In, in a place where maybe their physical and their emotional are more in tune. Yeah, yeah. And that's the resolution. That's basically Act 3. Wow. Yeah, okay. If you're doing a franchise, <laughs> you're going to leave your resolution open because you need more money. <laughs> yeah, cliffhanger. So really, it sounds like, because we, we had character theme 1 and character theme 2, or rather character 2 theme, um, we could probably do away with a character, couldn't we? Yeah, I think story is all character, really, basically. I think I think event, personally, this is me. Yeah. I think event, story, plot, springs mm. from character's behaviour. So yeah. I always find this, the, the reliance on story, story, you need story, 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 story. You can't have story if you don't have character generating story, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so I think the character is everything. You can have internal conflict, inner conflict, yeah. which people have, but then you will need somebody else to externalise that internal conflict for an audience. Otherwise, mm. do they know it's not a book? And actually, um, if we are leading a character into a, some kind of event and we have um, some kind of theme for the two different characters, then that conflict can be represented by those two different themes. Completely. That's where you get your... I think that happens a lot in music, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You feel two yeah. themes going in opposition to one another, even though probably yeah. the themes will have similarities in terms of the choice of key or whatever. You will There will still be opposition in terms of... Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking, well, I don't know, Stravinsky? 
is it? <laughs> we don't know, there's, you know. There's plenty of dissonance in Stravinsky. <laughs> and conflict and all that kind of um, turmoil that music brings so brilliantly. I mean, I think it's interesting, the use of music with, in film and TV, because quite often I find the music, it can sometimes get in my way because I want to feel it myself. And I don't like to be told often what to feel. If you're in the cutting room or in the edit and you think, oh, God, it's not quite working for whatever mm. reason, mm. let's wang on a bit of sentimental music because we've not, we've not managed to pull it off. Mm. Quite often my most favourite soundtracks have been the ones that have been farce, but absolutely yeah. on the money for the emotion that needs to be created in that particular moment. I think composing a soundtrack is an astonishingly masterful thing when done correctly and you know when done it can be a very very beautiful thing you know if you think about the great soundtrack composers uh you know you think of the way they use music in film it's it's fantastic but sometimes we use too much of it and you're like i know i'm meant to feel that Absolutely. I, there's been a couple of occasions where I've been told that there's a gag happening, so we need something funny. And it's like, well, no, you don't, because it is funny. Why Why do we <laughs> yeah. need music underneath it? it you don't yeah. need me to do, wah, 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 wah. you know, it's it's funny as it is. As it is. We don't need music. There was a, a period uh, where there was a lot of TV shows that were wall-to-wall music. And it was just too much. It's relentless. It's just, you know, just constantly there banging away. But that seems to have that seems to have passed now. We definitely got to a point where there seems to be an equilibrium again. Oh, that's because I think it's, you know, I think you do need that. I think because because quite a lot of times you feel like the audience are being underestimated, yeah. and you really should never ever ever underestimate mm. your because when I did Swallows and Amazons for you know that's a family film. And we were hoping to uh, to appeal to a cross generational demographic. That was the whole point of it. You know, it was for it was for the the people, the older people who had loved the book when they were children. But it was also for contemporary children. It was something that that grannies and granddads and mums and dads could take the kids to. And what I think is absolutely true about you know about that is that you 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 need nostalgia in there because because you are appealing to the, to the to people you know, in a nostalgic way. But you also need music that is also going to excite and generate and, you know, and, and keep the story moving, if you like. So it's that balance, isn't it? It's that balance of finding the the themes and the tones and the, and the yeah, the, I think the type of music that you use on, a, on particular films is everything. Because jarring music and you go, ooh, that doesn't fit. Or why did they decide to? That. And as Dan mentioned, you know, you don't necessarily need to put music into certain situations. Um, and as you mentioned, Andrea, sometimes people are af- afraid of silence. The use of silence in some scenes can have such a powerful effect where sometimes editors will go for some underscore or something to not have the silence. And I, I, I think uh, there's a lot of power to be had there. I think that's a very good point. And I, I often find as well when critics are reviewing a film or telly and they're thinking about they're praising people for their contributions um quite often most of the time screenwriters write silence they write it they it's in the scripts and things like that are you know we put it in our scripts you know we, mm. it, it's our thing pause silence noise it, it, it's in the script and i think that often Critics don't realise, or I'm, I'm not just blaming critics, but silence is, a, as you say, an astonishingly powerful tool and writers know how to use it. And if it's there, it's there for a reason. You don't, yeah. We've chosen not to have anyone speak at that particular moment for a reason. So therefore, why suddenly you come crashing in with you know, extraneous improvised dialogue or whatever happens? You're like, no, it's a, it's a moment of silence. Um, yeah. So I agree completely with you. I think silence is an incredibly powerful tool. I remember when I first started working, uh, you you quite often get scripts to look at, and I was astonished by the amount of detail that were in some of them. I mean, you know, down to minute little details about stuff. And there was quite often little bits that would say, and the music would stop, or, you know, something would come in here or, you know, I don't want this, I don't want that. And it, it it was really an eye opener to, to see the script and to see 
how much of what would end up at the end, the, the final product was actually in the script. So much of it. I think that's an interesting point you're raising because it talks about, because that talks to individual unique screenwriters' voices and mm. their style, which is very important, obviously, for composers as well, because each individual composer composes in their unique way. There is a tradition in some, you know, in American screenplays, I think. I think it's really fascinating if you read a lot of screenplays. In the American tradition, they're honed down and they're very economic and they're, you know, the guy walks to the walks up to the doors of the tall building, they open. It would be like that sparse or whatever. Whereas other writers, it's much more detailed, much more prosaic, much more novelistic. And it just depends on your voice. I personally, I am a writer that is in the room. I see the room. I see everything. I see the colors. I see the whatever. I see everything. Now, for some people, that's way too detailed. And quite a lot of times they'll just skip they'll only read the dialogue when they're reading your screenplay you're like no no I wrote this beautiful passage but that doesn't make any difference because it's that might not necessarily end up on screen and it's always wonderful for me when I go out to a set or or I talk to a director and you realize that they have taken what you've written and they have put their own genius onto it and there it is on you know on the screen and it's fabulous I mean recently on um on Elizabeth, the author Emma Healy went out to say I wasn't there that day, but but I do know that apparently she stood she stood and I'm I'm speaking not for her because I wasn't you know I wasn't there so this was reportage if you like she stood and looked at it and she just said I can't believe I was writing that book on my own all those years ago and here I am in Maud's world <laughs> and I think for an author that's astonishing when you see that that the contents of your brain have been translated into something physical and concrete because because people have paid it that that much respect and that much mm. consideration but not all screenplay writers give you that amount of detail interestingly enough in seven apparently you know if you read the screenplay an awful lot of the stuff that was on that screen is in that screenplay ah. yeah. you never might not necessarily know that you know <laughs> well from a, a, a musical perspective and i'm sure dan would be exactly the same here when i've done tv shows the script is really the first point of entry for me you know although you are reacting to what's on screen and it, it is music for picture having that access to that first voice you know that how it was intended and quite often like you say that you know the silences are in the script the even some music notes they might have been thinking of a particular style or something jazz music is playing or, you know, and that's really the first point of entry for a, for a composer, I think, is to sit down with a cup of tea and read the script. I think that's good to hear that. I mean, I think it's important. I, but I also do think that a film is an evolving, organic being and that it will evolve. And sometimes decisions that are made during the shoot or, you know, even in consultation with the writer or whatever, um, by the director, by the DOP, by the cinematographer, by the composer are better decisions. Mm -hmm. And it's really important that as a writer, I, I, I feel this really strongly, that you are open to that, that you cannot be defensive. You cannot go, this is my baby and I will not let it be changed because that way madness lies. Seriously. Mm -hmm. Because you have got to be open to the fact that this could, this is, this is like it's going to evolve and it's going to change and it's going to become something that you all own, and therefore you, not all of the things that you have put there are going to necessarily be the way that it should be in the end. Because better ideas are possible. I know it's hard, <laughs> but they really are. But it really speaks to what you were saying about it being a collaborative process and it's owned by everybody. It really is that open mind, isn't it? leave your ego at the door and let's make the best thing possible. You absolutely have to. And I think you, I think one of the things you learn when you've been around as long as I have and in development on so many different projects with so many different people, you have to be prepared to listen. Otherwise the good stuff will go flying by because you'll be so holding on to your own outrage and your own indignation. And that is no good for anybody. You know, um, I listen all the time. I don't always agree but I always, always, always listen. So, Andrea, what advice would you give to your younger self or anyone out there wanting to become a screenwriter? 
I would have said that I needed more confidence in my own, to have more confidence in your own opinion, I think would have been a, would have been a very important lesson for me because I, I tended to be quite bendy to begin with. If somebody, you know, I'm saying a minute ago, you have to listen. I think I listened too much to begin with. Mm. I think there is a, a happy medium where actually you have to be prepared to let some battles go in order to win the war, if you like. Make sure you know your priorities, that what are the things that really, really, really matter. I tend to write to, to split things into three things. Um, and I think I would have told my younger self to do this sooner. Um, things that I would lie down in the road and die for, you know, that you could run me over with a car and I will not give in. Things that I will shout a lot about and argue my case, but be prepared to shift slightly and things that actually don't matter that much. And yes, if that, if, if that, you know, then go, but there are certain things, certain things in the stuff that you are writing that you should lie down in the road to protect. And those are the things you need to know. And it wouldn't be all of them, but there would be certain things, you know, so I think it's a little bit too acquiescent to begin with. And now I'm not afraid of my own voice. And I don't mean that just in my writing. I mean, my own voice voice. I'm not afraid to sit in a room and say, no, I'm not, I'm not afraid to turn down projects that I don't feel I can give my heart to. I'm much better at knowing what is right for me and what is not. And even if something is, you know, is going to be hugely, have a big profile, if I don't think I can write it, what is the point of me doing it? Because I will fail. So those things I would have not, I, I, you know, I, I hate to say I once took a book adaptation in my earlier years because I really liked the cover. I wasn't sure about the book, but I, I really loved the cover. And I thought the cover spoke to me in a way that would that would help me get over some of the problems. Because I, I thought the cover held the intrinsic, the key to the book. Um, wasn't the case. And so I've, I've made some um, bad, you know, some not bad decisions, but I've made some wrong decisions. And, it, and it's about trusting trusting yourself and having more confidence in that and being able to go I don't think so and so I'm now much better in meetings I will say no much more <laughs> I think it's a thing that women do you know women get talked over they get mm. down more than men I'm <laughs> to say it um and as I get older I don't much care whether I'm shouted over or not because I just keep talking <laughs> Well, I've got um, I've got two girls, uh, eight and ten, and uh, I nobody can talk over the eight year old. Absolutely nobody. <laughs> Good. I like to hear that. Um, it's things we you know we're make we're starting to speak up more um, and to be heard more, mm. um, you know. And it's not it is not men get you know in my in my industry if men are difficult inverted commas um, obstreperous or basically bully then that's considered to be okay because they're men. If women do it, it we're difficult. We're, we are difficult. You know, we're, we should be avoided at all costs because it's not acceptable and we're not excused. We don't have the same excuses made for us as some of these genius men who romp about throwing their weight around constantly. But, you know, that's my, um, I don't feel the need to be approved of in a way that I was before. Well, we've enjoyed listening to you today, Andrea. Very much so. You'll have to do a bit of editing. No, it's been it's been really illuminating. And I think, actually, Dan, it's going to help us quite a lot, isn't it, this? The stuff about the plot points that I've written down here, I think is, honestly, I think it's gold dust, yeah. Um, and I do, I do think it will definitely help inform yeah. us to make some better choices, I think. Rich Cartoons writes on Apple Podcasts, great idea for a mysterious craft. Many thanks to Gareth and Dan for the start of what will be a most enlightening and entertaining series on the mysterious art of score composing. As listening to scores is my passion, I'll be fascinated to discover how it all comes together. Looking forward to hearing further developments. Thank you ever so much, Rich Cartoons, for your review. Oh, yes, thank you, Rich. That's very nice of you. I hope you'll agree that we've had some fantastic guests thus far, plus we've got some amazing ones lined up. But if you happen to know of anyone who you think would be a good fit 
us to be a guest on the podcast, then please do get in touch. Or indeed, if you are someone in the production industry who would like to offer your amazing wisdom yes and experience then do get in touch and you can do that via the making a soundtrack.com website is that a wrap that's a wrap that's a wrap how do you find us online uh, making a soundtrack.com will tell you all you need to know links to the podcast social media links there's information about us and anything that might be useful if you've been enjoying the show and you like what you hear, we'd really be grateful if you could give us a good rating on your podcast app. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell someone, share our posts, give us feedback. We're relying on your generosity to spread the word. Thanks for joining us and hope you can join us next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Right, I'm going to have to do this because I'm reading it off something and I'm looking slightly bizarrely at the microphone and now I'm just... Oh, it's... <laughs> <laughs>